Hey, this is Leah, and you're listening to Ads with Leah, a paid social podcast. This podcast provides creative-first digital advertising education for impact-driven businesses and marketers who care more about quality than they do about quantity. Stay tuned to learn how to make amazing ads that help you reach the right people and attract and engage your ideal audience. Hi, Charlie. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So today we wanted to chat about Facebook ads and how the targeting is basically set at the ad level. Um, but before we get into it, I wanted to ask a bit about your background in advertising and how you got started, because I know you've been in the field for a long time. Yeah. So first off, thanks for having me. I, I'm super excited to be talking about this stuff. I'm a bit of a nerd. This is the kind of thing that like, I literally like I dream about it. I wake up in the middle of the night and like, I like literally can't think about other things. So it's, it's nice to, <laughs> I got to find a passion. So a bit about where I got started. Um, I was a touring musician 15 years ago or longer, and I got really good at promoting my band on tour and coming home with money. And then eventually I started working at radio stations. I was an on-air radio personality. I got really good at promoting events and then using like MySpace organic type stuff. Um, and then I put myself to grad school uh, while being a musician, promoting events, doing marketing and promotions for folks and put myself to grad school for marketing and business management. Um, ended up in LA. My first job was at a social media agency at the time, like making uh, fake views for like uh, pop stars. Uh, primarily at the time, it was, I think, like Ariana Grande, I think was the big client at the time, giving her false YouTube views. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bottom line was organic growth hacking um, and, and falsifying numbers and stuff. And then I went out on my own. And my biggest client at the time fired me one day because he said, hey, I dropped 100 bucks in Facebook ads. And it did more for me than I pay you 2000 a month for. And we were buddies. He was just like, look, I, I tried this thing and it's, and it's better. So I'm going to just pay you out for the rest of our contract. But know that like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go do this other thing. And I licked my wounds. I ate very poorly that night. You know, I had some carbohydrate therapy. And the next day I put my credit card into Facebook and started promoting my band. And within three months, I was promoting stuff for Jamba Juice and Jay and Silent Bob, like Comic-Con speaking events and things like that. And then within nine months of that, I was a supervisor at Omnicom spending, uh, managing million dollar daily budgets. Um, because at the time when I started, literally nobody was doing Facebook. It was the ugly, you know, stepchild, right? Like it was the thing that nobody really wanted to do because everybody knew email and everybody knew Google. And so I was the one person that had any spend. I had nine months when the average person didn't even know you could do it. Mm. Again, just out of like luck, right? I had a client that was ahead of the game. They fired me. I dove into it. And that was like 2013 that all of this stuff started. So by the time 2014, 2015 rolled around, I was managing million dollar daily budgets for international brands at evil, faceless conglomerate ad agencies, um, managing big groups of people. And because I was very early on in the Facebook game, like I remember after about six months, Facebook introduced the Facebook pixel six months after me having these like seven figure budgets. 
you know, to actually have conversion campaigns instead of just being a pay-per-click network. Nobody else wanted to do it. So when Facebook came to the ad agency to try to pitch, you know, advertise on Facebook, I was both the most experienced person in the room and also because of my MBA and just the way that I was raised, my parents were both computer scientists, I was really, really good at conducting case study research, like empirical data analysis and studies. So every time they came with a giant coupon of, hey, we want to test this brand new product, lead gen. We're going to try to do this crazy idea of a lead gen ad unit. When they were like, hey, we'll give you $5 million to test this. Who do you have? I was the only person in the room that could raise their hand. So I did. And so long story short, after years of that, I got to know everybody at Facebook that was leading the engineering and the product team. You know, I brought DPA to market and was behind a lot of the testing around CBO and advanced matching, primarily just because at the time I was three months to six months ahead of anybody else, which meant, you know, I was two generations earlier than them because of the cutting edge of tech. And because of my education, I had the ability to put to to give their research team actionable feedback. And, and we just had this great relationship. So over the last nine years or so, I've now gotten to the point of a couple hundred million dollars in spend. My students and clients have done well over a billion in revenue. And I've just had the luxury by luck and preparation to be in the right place at the right time, the right person to raise their hand and say yes, to be a part of a lot of how the Facebook ad platform was put together and, and what it looks like and how it behaves now. I, I don't think, I'm not gonna take credit for what it's doing, but I will say I was there at a lot of the pieces and understanding how to use it and, and to be give that feedback. I was one of a handful of people that was there at, at, at the majority of the step of the way. And um, that's kind of brought me to, to, to where I'm at now, which was you know having gone through agencies and client side and teaching over years and years. I'm now at a place where I just try to spend my days helping people get the support that I never had because I'll put it like this and then I'll answer I'll finish with it. At my job, when I was at that ad agency running million dollars a day, if I didn't know how to do something on Facebook, most people, when you don't know how to do something, you go to your boss. You say like, hey, look, I tried, I researched it the best I can, can you help me out? My boss literally took out her headphone, told me to check my job description, put her headphone back in and went back to work. And that was the level of support that I got. And that stuck <laughs> with me. And so to this day, I just really wanna help people learn from the experience that I've had because it, and I'm, I think I'm, there's been a lot of folks that don't necessarily understand things, but are very magnanimous and have there's a lot of bad advice out there that's really popular. And that's one thing that drew me to you was you were saying something that I find to make complete sense and I completely agree with, although is sometimes seen as wildly controversial because it doesn't necessarily agree with whatever is the, you know, common du jour, you know, strategy of the day. And um, that was really appealing, which, which, which drew me in, into you. <laughs> yeah, so this idea that kind of the the creative is set at the ad level. Why do you think it's so why do you think it's so controversial for so many people? I think the primary reason when we're talking about ads do the targeting. I think the primary reason comes from 
the lineage of ad tech. So when I started in ads, everybody who was an expert, everybody in managerial positions had gotten into that space because they came over from television or they were really good at Google, a search or programmatic, or they were really good at email, right? So inventory and demand-based platforms, they were really good at that. And so what happened is this ideology of not necessarily respecting the end customer experience, but trying to monetize the attention that you had being the primary focus. And we see that all of the time, even today. And the idea that I think people have a misconception around what an audience does and around how the platforms work. And primarily this comes from that idea of, well, these are the segments of my audience. I just need to hit them all at this spot. If I get my cost per click below a certain rate, or if I get my click through rate above a certain number, if my conversion rate is this, then everything will work out. And what they miss out of all of that is that Facebook is a completely different animal, right? It's a, it's a revolutionary idea around respecting the end user's experience and, and what they call an optimized CPM environment. And Snapchat copied it, Pinterest copied it, Instagram copied it, Vine copied it, RIP to Vine, uh, you know, TikTok copied it, this, YouTube copied it of, well, our goal is we want people to come and to stay and to spend as much time as possible on the site. And basically what Facebook did is took what Yahoo and what these old portals had done at the end of the 90s of keeping people on the site as much as possible. They took that into a social feed where MySpace kind of fell short. And I think that ultimately the majority of folks that run ads or do marketing, they don't come from that. They don't come from organic social being their foundation and looking at ads as an amplification of organic, mm, they, mm -hmm. they might have any number of a dozen other pathways. And it's no slight against them, like everybody finds their way one way or another. But I think that's the biggest gap and the biggest piece, because almost every time when I talk to people, they have a strategy, this or that, I can reference it back to, oh, you learned that from Ezra Firestone. Great, smart guy, really successful, not a Facebook marketer. Right, or they learn that from Depeche, smart guy, really successful, not a Facebook marketer, or from Ty Lopez or Tim Bird or, or, or you know, Cat Howell or, or you know any of these Savannah Sanchez, who's more of an organic person but still not a Facebook marketer, not a paid media marketer first. And I think that because they look at information as colored by that knowledge, they're always looking through the information they receive through the lens, you know, whether the woman or the man that they've learned from very rarely are those people organic, social, into paid social and that, in that aspect. So I don't know if you were organic first, but you totally got the right idea, which was drew me to you on, on the, on the ads to the targeting piece, because ultimately the entire system is just built around the end user experience. And if you can monetize that great, but you have to have respect for the other person. And I think that ultimately is something that for what it's worth, I don't know that email, the email marketers and the search advertiser, people I know them, it's, 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 it's a certain number at a certain rate at a certain cost and they do as much as possible.
Whereas Facebook advertisers, it's very much like, well, does this person like you? Can you have a relationship? Mm -hmm. Who's going mm -hmm. to appreciate this type of content? And I can be polarizing at times. And I understand sometimes people like me, sometimes they don't like me, but I understand who's seeing my content, right? I, I try to be better at it. But my point to that is I think Facebook is so driven by that user experience in a way that not a lot of people have been taught to value. And I think mm -hmm. that's nothing more than the most successful people didn't come up Facebook first. They just took, they were already dominant in the field and then they ported that over to Facebook. And we're now seeing generations of individuals who learned from somebody who learned from somebody who learned from that. And fruit of the poisonous tree, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. I love that concept of the amplification of organic. I, I really think that that's how we should think about advertising, even in terms of the creative that you're making. I always tell my clients it should be something that, that looks like it fits into that newsfeed. Like if it's on TikTok, it needs to look like an organic TikTok video. And I think sometimes businesses get caught up in wanting to make something that you know, is, is super professional or really reflects their brand in that way, but making something that, that feels organic and that matches the platform is, is really key for that. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, I look at it like this. I, I, I said this once to somebody at, in passing at lunch and it stuck with me for years and years later. What we're doing as Facebook advertisers is trying to monetize being a burden to somebody else. Like I don't go onto my Facebook or I don't open up Instagram specifically to get sold to by salespeople. I go on there for whatever reason it is, whether to share something or to just engage new content. Sometimes I'm just in bed and I open up reels and I sit there for 45 minutes just going through, you know, whatever, right? That's a curated experience to try to keep me on the platform and be happy and entertained. So just like a billboard is some burden in the sky, like I'm trying to enjoy the sunset and then all, all of a sudden there's this like thing, like that's, that's the idea of a billboard, right? Or uh, print ads in a newspaper, you're reading a whole bunch of stuff and then boom, here's 20% off at Subway or something. I don't know why I'm not trying to take shots at Subway. I was giving an example. My apologies <laughs> yeah. to Subway. People, people, one of my first ads was a Subway ad. But in that way, I think we have to respect that if you want to be really successful, try to take that burden into something that people are into a positive. Like, how do you make that so that that end person is actually happy because of that experience or engaged because of that experience? And I think there's a responsibility that we have to those end people. And I think Facebook, especially in the last couple of years, has really be in, has really turned the screws on making that more and more and more important, which ultimately has led to the success and failure of a lot of advertisers because of what they've chosen to prioritize. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Facebook has been moving in that direction? Um, two reasons. One, I think, there's a lot more competition for social media space. So as an app, as a resource, they need to get better and better, right? We've, they've, 
they were able to kind of Snapchat came and it hasn't really went, but like that was a big threat for a minute. And they kind of held Snapchat off of the gates and now they have their own little piece. And then Vine came and, and went and, and Twitter's clearly been there, right? And, and, and you know, you, I'm, I'm, I'm very active on there. I actually probably use that a bit more for personal reasons than, than other platforms. YouTube is really encroached into their space as these social places. So one is just trying to say, we have a party. Everybody, every, every house on the street has a party. We want the kids, we want, we want all the cool people to stay at our party instead of going next door. So we got to make our party cooler and cooler and cooler. And part of the way they do that is just saying like, oh, this is what you want at the party. We've got a lot of that. You like this? We got more of it, right? Just keep people happy, right? Yeah. And I think another side of it too is that there has, on a, on, a, on a grander scale, I think ultimately there has been, this is Facebook's way of responding to a lot of negative feedback that they've had as a business. Mm-hmm. You know, you go back to Cambridge Analytica type scandals and all of these other things. And one of the ways that Facebook can Ultimately, one of the ways that you can remain in somebody's life and you can remain a valued member of the conversation or Facebook is brought to your home on a regular basis, right? One of the ways that you keep that going is everybody makes mistakes, right? Everybody says things or does things, but if you can remain, if you can continue to deliver more positive experience then you're gonna, it's gonna be harder and harder to get rid of you. I mean, how many times have we had a coworker that wasn't that great at their job, but everybody loved them. And they kept <laughs> their job even though they weren't that good at it. Versus other people that were amazing at their job, but didn't get along with anybody. That, inter- that interpersonal relationship, I think is really key. And, and so part of this is, if you opened Facebook and it was literally a, uh, non-curated, completely chronological feed of every page that you had followed and every friend that you had, it would be such a mess and you would hate it and you would be less and less involved. But the fact that every time you open it up, it's a reflection, it's a mirror on who you are and what you engage with makes it more and more engaging. I mean, it's, it's psychological programming. Some of it is healthy. Some of it is wildly unhealthy too, right? There's a downside to this also. Yeah, for sure. Um, echo chambers and all of that. Um, yeah. But I think that's part of their big piece is the better the user experience, the more likely you are to stay on there longer, right? And it's, you know, it's just like any other business. Like if I go to a restaurant and every time I, I go, the food is always good, I'm gonna continue going back. I live in LA, I go to El Compadre. Anytime I want, anytime I want Mexican food, that is the spot du jour I'm going to. When mm-hmm. friends come and visit, we're going to El Compadre. We're getting the flaming margarita. I'm getting a quesadilla. Like, I know what I'm getting. It's great. And, and so it's sort of just become that turnkey. Like, I'm going to go here for a dopamine hit. I'm going to go here for, you know, whatever it is. And I think that they've gotten, they have solved that problem better than anybody else has before them in this space in a way that we hadn't really seen since the late 90s with the portals I think Yahoo was the best at just being you went to this one website and it was your entry point to every, or what America online was in the you know in 97 right where you go to one place you never even had to go out on the real internet because there was chat rooms there was games there was 
whatever you wanted. And I think Facebook is doing the best they can to kind of recreate that experience. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, you um, had a, a restaurant analogy there that I, I think we can take even further into like our conversation topic of I think when advertisers focus on things other than the ad it's kind of like a restaurant that doesn't focus on the food like they're maybe they're focused on like the service or the atmosphere or other things like that but the food is what it's all about just like on facebook the ads are what it's all about and that's the that's the thing that people go there for right and so yeah yeah when advertisers aren't making that their focus it just it doesn't make sense yeah and i mean you see this all the time just like your point about the about the restaurant, like you know, I I, I just I, I I think ultimately, if you want people to come back, you have to give them a reason to, and if you mm -hmm. want other folks to enjoy it that are new, you have to give them a reason to, and just like Facebook, just like your brand, if you're an advertiser, you know, everybody has very 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 few products are so innovative or so differentiated that they're brand new so for instance liquid death i'm drinking some liquid death shout out to my <laughs> friends at liquid death it's sparkling water there's about forty thousand of these bottles on the shelf at any whole foods from twenty thousand different brands i've chosen this one for one reason or another but my experience with them as a brand is great. Their emails make me feel happy. I enjoy the, the branding. I'm enjoying the experience. The point is my experience as an end user, Topo Chico and, and Liquid Death do phenomenal jobs. It's just making you feel happy about something way better than, I don't know, brisk. I don't care if I enjoy a brisk. <laughs> I don't really care. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, I think Facebook is just another brand trying to make their customers happy and trying to make people have a good time when they're there. And, and I don't see really any difference between one or the other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as advertisers, then it's our job to help Facebook create that positive experience for their users. And Facebook will reward us with lower CPMs and, and we'll also be rewarded by customers being more interested in the ad in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, Facebook's overall business model is attention for profit, right? Like eyeballs for money, if you want to be crude about it. Like, um, so when you put up an ad and people respond very positively to it, they comment, they share it, they watch the video, they have a good experience. Great. You're probably going to, that ad will be shown to more people. Just like if you post an Instagram reel and people watch it, it's going to be discovered by people that have no idea who you are. Me and my wife went on vacation. We posted one Instagram reel at the spot in Italy and like 8,000 people have watched this reel. I've got like 200 followers on my personal Instagram account. Clearly there's this giant world of people that were just for whatever reason engaged with this stupid transition and us having fun on this, you know, whatever. And ads are very much the same thing. And Facebook's even going so much further than that, where they understand, all right, well, somebody clicked on this ad. How much time did they spend on your site? How many pages did they go to? Did they come back to Facebook afterwards? When they bought, did they have a good user experience? You know, Facebook polls, customers after, after you click on a Facebook ad, you'll see, you know, polling. Mm -hmm. And all of that goes into what Facebook calls like the page score. And the higher that page score, the lower your cost for advertising is going to be. Because ultimately, you're a good partner. 
Facebook is giving you, they're selling you some of their inventory, some of their eyeballs for profit, right? Some of the attention that they have, they're selling it to you. And if you take it with disrespect and abuse that to the point where somebody says, I keep seeing this ad, I want to block this thing and I'm getting off of it, right? Like if I'm leaving the app because Facebook showed me your ad, Facebook's going to start charging you more and more money just to reach people because ultimately you're a liability of the business model. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big relationships person. And I will go to this to say in any relationship, if your partner asks something from you and your response is to neglect their needs, that relationship is probably not going to end well. Like if my wife said, I need X, Y, and Z, and my response was to give her the finger and walk out of the room, we're going to be fighting. It's not going to be happy. <laughs> yeah. And there's no real difference, I think, between that and, and what we see in, inside of Facebook or any paid media platform for that, insta for that instance. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were talking last week a bit about how the ad is essentially kind of each ad creates its own lookalike audience. And that is how mm -hmm. the, the targeting works at the ad level. So once users start to engage with the ad, Facebook notices who those people are, finds out what they have in common, and then essentially finds more people like that. So in that way, the algorithm kind of learns who's engaging, what type of person is engaging and finds more people like that. So do you have any tips on, on how to actually make creative that, that reaches the right people? Yeah, I, and I love the way you put that—the ad making their own look alike. I, I, you know, I've been saying that for years, and 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 I think that that is absolutely dead on. Because hey, if if I'm in a room with fifty people, if you've ever done like door to door sales, or you've ever been like somebody on the street, like I was a door to door salesman for like Safe Light Auto Glass, like windshield replacement, like in 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 Florida in a suit in the summer, it was. Terrible. Uh, but I've done that, right? And I've also been in Little League selling candy to people. And eventually you find out these people are going to probably say yes. These people are going to probably say no. And you get better and better at that. Facebook is just a salesperson figuring that out. And so when you're trying to figure those things out, one of the things is did I really focus on what we're taught about like interest groups or audiences or customer profiles or people that we want to talk to? Part of that that's really important is to say, you know, if, if I'm in France and I have a dog food company, one of the easiest ways for me to make sure that my ads get seen by the right people is to write an ad in French that says, hey, do you have a dog that's, you know, like, like that's a very easy way of targeting. And so a lot of times what we try to do is we will focus in on just that one piece of the conversation. but. Almost every product has features and benefits. There's positioning. There's a million different types of sales pitches that you can go into, right? Like if you're selling a minivan, right? It's, it's big or it's a good value or it's really safe. Or you can have seven kids or it's got little TVs in the back of every headrest, whatever it is, right? There's a million things. So you might, I'll use this analogy. If you're trying to sell vegetables, right? If you're trying to sell me on broccoli, Mind you, I'm not a big fan of broccoli. I'm more of a Brussels sprouts guy. So I'll use that as my example here. You might say, hey, look, we've got the lowest price broccoli. I don't care. Now, somebody else that's a big broccoli fan might be like, oh, you got the lowest cost. Great, thank you. I'm going to buy from you. 
Or you might say, oh, I've got the freshest. And somebody else is not very price conscious, but because you said you had the freshest broccoli, like it was off the farm yesterday, it's direct to you. That might be what appeals to them. You might have folks that have no interest in reading, you know, long copy on, on Facebook. They don't look at the pictures. They just want to go through videos. They just want to watch. They want the, it's, a, it's a video delivery device, right? So your content in a video form might reach them, whereas if you had just a static image, they might never see it. Conversely, there are some people, I, my mom, for instance, is somebody that hates watching videos on Facebook, so she will only look at pictures. If there's a video, she won't do it. She's just like, I'm being sold, I don't care. But she'll, if there's a picture, she'll at least absorb it. Mm, that's interesting. So my point with all of this is, my point with all of this is, uh, although she d demands videos whenever I travel with my wife. So like, she doesn't care about other people's videos. She just wants to see pictures of, she wants to see videos of her puppy, of, of her, what she calls her okay. puppies. That's all okay. she wants, right? <laughs> uh, um, but my point here is, in order to try to let Facebook, when the ads do the targeting, if you can understand, and I teach this often, in the, in the Facebook Ads MBA program around concepts, right? So do you, what are the various forms of trying to get somebody's attention and make the sales pitch that you have? One of the biggest things that I see people say is, well, I have an ad, I'm just gonna make five ads more that are exactly like it and I'm gonna be able to scale my business. And my argument is you've got the, it's the safest minivan on the market sales pitch. Now you can say that 12 different ways but if it's 35 grand and a family has 30, they're never gonna buy. Like, so you have to come up with a different angle, right? You have to, you have to figure out, like if they're not interested about safety, because they're all safe, but they wanna put seven kids in there, or they want the lay flat seats, or whatever it is, if you're not able to overcome that person's objection or get their attention, then that ad doesn't really scale. So you can scale your efficiency inside of your little market, but ultimately, those lookalikes and a way to think about creative and appeal to more people is try to think of my ads probably all appeal to roughly people that look and behave like this. How do I appeal to somebody else? And the last analogy with this that I'll make and then and try to move on is like when I was running Jamba Juice, we had a really big point of the brand was convinced that their target customer was they put all their Jamba Juices next to colleges. And they were convinced that it was like a health conscious college student that didn't have a lot of money that wanted to be on the go. And what we found through market research and some ad tech and, and, and serving was that was 20% of their customers. 70% of them were parents, primarily moms, that like had kids and they wanted to just feed them something healthy on the go, but they had like three kids. So it was just... Yeah, it works in college towns, but it's primarily lower income neighborhoods around colleges with one parent, a dad or a mom, um, with like four kids in the minivan screaming a back home from you know soccer practice or something like that. Like, okay, we'll stop at the Jamba Juice, I'm gonna give them something healthy and we're good to go. But the point is once they started to appeal to those types of customers, they were able to massively expand their business. And so the point here is to understand who are you currently appealing to and how do you sell to something, somebody completely different? Mm. And sometimes that's video versus images or men versus women or price versus features and benefits mm -hmm. or UGC content versus uh, something else. Mm -hmm. and, and then ultimately the last point to this that I'll make is that because we try to work on a consolidated 
campaign structure, we might have four or five of these different ads. And ultimately, if some user happens to be in the, I'm price conscious, I also want a minivan that has seven people, and I want to be super safe, you might see three or four different ads. And some combination of those different sales pitches put together is going to get you to want to buy that car. And mm. when somebody says, oh, this is all I need is the best ad and I'll scale my business, they're completely missing yeah. what we're talking about here. Uh, it's the, the Venn diagram of all the lookalike audiences. Where do the circles overlap? That's where you're going to get the easiest conversion. Yeah, totally. Yeah. When people think that one ad is going to scale them, it's like they're, they're not considering that different people resonate differently with different ads. So essentially what you're saying is kind of focusing on, I would call this like the ad angle, like basically the, mm -hmm. the angle that you're taking, whether that is the cheapest cost or, you know, a specific feature that it does, or it's environmentally friendly or whatever. It's kind of like the, the angle or the way that you're positioning the product. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and those will all appeal to different folks, right? I mean, yeah. you and I have probably bought the exact same product for completely different reasons at some yeah. point in our lives. Yeah, right? definitely. Do you ever worry that you might have inconsistent messaging? Like if you've got a bunch of different ads running, they're targeting different angles and people are seeing different things. Would that create kind of like inconsistency for the, the people that are seeing those ads? I think so. I see that a lot. I think that comes from a lack of structure around how you do it. And so the way that I was taught was here's our brand message. And we would literally create personalities, right? So there'd be a Leah, there'd be a Charlie, there'd be a, an Ali, there'd be a Steven, right? And we put in like attributes of these people and what they might look like. And there was a customer personas. Um, and we would try to sell to each one of those customers, but ultimately under the umbrella of this is what the brand is. And when you have a very clear brand identity, um, then you don't get too off topic with the conflicting nature of things. Um, and I think one of the biggest sources that people have with the conflicting nature is they're trying to sell too many things, right? So most big businesses that I've seen be successful, small businesses that have grown, come around a flagship identity or flagship offer, a flagship product, right? One or two things they can spend all of their money on to scale the rest of their business. And everything makes sense because the people coming in are solve, you're solving this one problem and then you're expanding on it. When you try to solve a bunch of them, it becomes really, really easy to have a conflicting nature, right? Um, I mean, one of my brands uh, that I'm a part owner in is a, is a you know, women's clothing brand, like a shapewear brand. And one of our biggest competitors at one point is trying to be um, appeal on a very aesthetic nature and at the other point trying to appeal on a very like shapely thing. So they have this big conf conflict of some of their models have what I would consider wildly unrealistic body types. And then other models are the every person, but there's a big miscongruency in, in that, that messaging. And so half the time, you know, I, I did some test buys with them. And if you buy the shapewear, then you see the, like, you also see messaging for like, you know, these, these supermodel body types. It's like, there's no way I'm ever going to buy any of this stuff, but you got me because of like the cami shapewear, like compression, whatever. And it's just that brand is struggling because they don't have an identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest point. 
Yeah, yeah. I think of it the same way. When I work with clients, I always look at what I call the core benefit, which is kind of like the main benefit that the product has that appeals to everyone. And then make sure that each angle that we're testing still has that messaging of the core benefit so that we can have that kind of cohesive message that runs through all the campaigns. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, most brands have one unfair advantage on the marketplace, one thing that sets them apart from the other people, or they're completely ignorable. So I love the idea that you're trying to make sure that that one that one single identifier is present in all messaging. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Nike has the just do it. They've got a million different ads that appeal to a million different products to billions of people, but there's this ethos that goes into everything. And I think that mm-hmm. that's really key. Yeah, definitely. So I know that as part of what you teach, you talk a lot about broad audiences and not using a lot of like interest targeting or things like that. Do you ever have clients that, or would you ever recommend that someone, you know, you talk about all these different angles. Would you ever recommend that someone create separate audiences for each of those? For example, if you're promoting an environmentally friendly angle, would you want to market that to a sub audience that has more that has more specified targeting than broad? I generally don't, and I haven't for years. And I'll be honest, I fought that tooth and nail. When CBO was in development, I had what I call bucket-based CBO, which a lot of people know as cloud CBO from Tim Bird. They may or may not have come out around very similar periods of time, and I may or may not have been in an audience when he introduced some of that stuff, and I may or may not have known what some of the slides are gonna be later on. Either way, I was a big fan of custom messaging for a bunch of audiences and I micromanaged everything and I worked really hard and I believed in that wholeheartedly. And I knew that by force of will, if I worked harder, I could make more money. And I was really empowering. But at some point, there's a law of diminishing returns. Like I can't work 30 hours a day. I can't be on top of 200 ads. And ultimately, I'm a big, I, I think hard work is valuable but Facebook is the thing that's doing the hard work. You're its manager. And so if you have an employee that's working really hard and then you work really hard to micromanage everything that employee does, the likelihood of that employee being any good at their job or happy with their job or sticking around is pretty low. And so my point to that is ultimately I don't think most brands are in a spot where they have the luxury of trying to itemize out every bit of messaging that they have. Most brands wish they could spend more. And what that means is that you're probably not taking advantage of the opportunity that you have right in front of you. Um, Very few people have saturated the entire audience of like, my wife owns a Pilates studio. So has has any brand reached every Pilates student in the United States? The answer is probably no. Um, And there's a lot of saturation, but my point to all of that is, if you're trying to change your messaging for the individual person, it becomes your responsibility at that point to then figure out what test is worthwhile improving. Like, is this ad working better because it caught a good audience or is it because it's the third round of testing? Does that deserve more investment than something else? Is that ad set doing better because it's had more spend because it's been alive longer? Or is it doing better because that ad is, is a better, because there is all these questions that ultimately the answer is you have no way of knowing. 
And instead of trying to go down solving all of these effectively impossible to solve questions, if you focus on the way I do testing is I will test by concept. And I will very much try to have every test at solving a business problem. Do I want to get more efficient at my lowest cost? Or do I want to, you know, going back to the minivan example, do I want to go, do I want to get more and more efficient at saying our minivan is cheaper than everybody? Or do I want to get more efficient at saying our minivan can, you know, has lay flat seats and great features and benefits? Or do I want to say, I've got those two things down. And what I really want to do is scale the people that I appeal to. So I'm now going to have messaging saying, hey, we're also the safest. And that will at the same time bring in new eyeballs because some people don't care about price or don't care about the lay flat. They just want the safest minivan. And also, it will help the other two sales pitches by giving another validated angle and an option for an impression of an ad. Because the end, the ultimate, ultimately, a Facebook user might see a dozen ads from somebody before they ever even click, and so they might see different ads from different ad sets. And my biggest focus is every ad set is a bifurcation of data. So the more data you can have in one place, the smarter that thing is. The more experienced your salesperson is, the better she's going to be at making a sale. So my focus is, let me give her the best possible sales pitches, and I'm going to test to say whether or not, let's say she's a telemarketer. Do I want to give her a new script that's better at closing this customer, or do I want to give her a new script that's good at closing a customer that she might not be talking to yet? And every test is either getting more efficient or appealing to new people. And then I'll just let my salesperson do their job. And when I've taken that approach, every time I've taken that approach, even though I fought it tooth and nail, um, I did better than me trying to micromanage my employees, mm -hmm. um, which took me about six months of eating humble pie and about $10 million of Facebook ad spend to finally just throw my <laughs> hands up and be like, all right, I've got to relearn everything. Um, yeah. Which yeah, was, it's so appealing, I'll, I'll this use, idea. It was fun. Okay. Yeah, it's so appealing, this idea that we can, you know, have that much control over things and, and really optimize. And I think advertisers get excited about that. And it is fun to think about different messages for different audiences, but I agree with you that it's just it's just micromanaging and you're not allowing the algorithm to really do what it does best. Yeah, and, and the other point to that I'll say to people, and I just did a thread on this yesterday, um, or no, today, I just did a thread on Twitter about this. Um, either way, um, it was about like, is that worth your time? Mm -hmm. Right. So incremental lift in your business is what's important. So a lot of people focus on trying to make their Facebook ad as good as possible. My question is, if you're worrying about audiences and worrying about ads and trying to hack all of this stuff, is that more or less important than figuring out how to make sure that you understand the relationship of if I spend more money on Facebook, does that lift my Amazon, my Google, my email, my revenue that I see everywhere else? And then ultimately, how do I best create an environment to improve my site's conversion rate and the AOV of my customer, the LTV of my customer and that customer relationship? There's only so many problems you can try to solve for. And you can't test what happens after the click if you're testing how to get a click. So you can't test 
a million ads and then also do a landing page test. Because if you've got 20, 50 ads out there, you can't say, well, I did a landing page test and dark mode won over light mode. Well, you also had a million different things of a million users coming from completely different experiences. That test that you're running after the click is completely useless. So you can make small changes to improve your Facebook ad account. That's great. But I, I, I had a boss that told me this. It's like you can't move mountains if you're worrying about the pebbles, right? Like if you're trying to hack an audience, what that means is you're not improving the customer journey. Like there's no way you can do all of these things at once. One of these might have a 3% change in your business. The other one might have a 300% change in your business. Which one of these things is really worthwhile? And ultimately you've trusted face, you, you, you've decided to hire Facebook as an employee because you trust that they can do their job. Your job is to give them the best tools so that they can go out there and do their job. You keep it simple and you let it be stable, projectable and effective. And then you maximize the value of it until you go back to it and you say, all right, I figured everything else out. Now I'm going to make this better. And when you do that, that's how you take a struggling three or $5 million business. And you make it a hundred million dollar business. I've done that more than a handful of times of taking folks that are struggling a six, seven figure and having eight or nine figure exits. And the vast majority of what they all have in common is, Focusing on thinking bigger and thinking bigger and thinking bigger and trying to stop solving just because there's a million different buttons you can click doesn't mean that you should touch any of it. Right. Like mm -hmm. I'm sure my car has 20 options that uh, I, I've never once used. I know it's got, I have a Kia. I know it's got the, uh, the heated seat because my dog hits it every time he walks in to the car and it's got the autopilot mode and, and that's about, and Bluetooth. Other than that, there's probably a million things I pay for that I'll never use, but it does mm -hmm. the job. Um, and, so, and so that's, I think allocation of resources is wildly undervalued. Mm -hmm. So why does Facebook have interest targeting? I know you touched on this a bit in our conversation previously, but the, yeah. what's the story on the history of that? So the reason we even have interest groups which Facebook is trying to get rid of. And they get rid of thousands and thousands of them. And by the way, side note, if your entire business is built on an interest group and then Facebook, you wake up tomorrow and Facebook says, oh, by the way, we got rid of it. What are you going to do? Like that is, a, that is a castle made on sand that too many advertisers are sitting on right now. That is a problem. I would never try to build my business on the back of something that could disappear tomorrow without my control. Very unstable place. Facebook interest groups basically come from Google's affinity audiences. So when Facebook first came around, Google was a pay-per-click platform. It was the dominant force in the world. Facebook came around trying to be what we call a pay-per-click. It was a PPC platform. It's cost per click and you, hopefully something happens. And you have to place a million pixels all over your site just to track everything. And you're gonna hopefully try to make it work. And one of the ways that Facebook and their teams as a vendor, just as a product, got adoption. Basically people saying, oh, I'll use Facebook, is they had features and benefits that other people were used to seeing. So Facebook interest groups are their version of an affinity audience that we see on Google. They were invented over 10 years ago. And the honest truth is the tech support, the update of that software basically hasn't been touched in many, many years. 
And so the, the, the interest group exists as a way of saying, okay, you're a Google marketer. We want you to feel comfortable inside of Facebook. We're giving you things that you're used to seeing. And that's where it came from. And, but I think a lot of people think, well, these people are interested in dog food. So I'm going to show my dog food ad to these people. And Facebook's just going to force it onto them, which is Facebook would do that anyway. But now you're paying extra money to force ads onto people. And the downside of an interest group is interest groups cost extra. Anytime you layer targeting on top of a broad, it, it comes at a fee. Back in the day, you used to literally see like it was like 10 cents or 20 cents or 50 cents added to your CPMs to do. And this is back when CPMs were like two, three bucks. So it was like really costly. But now what you're basically doing with an interest group is you are paying extra to prevent that ads look like audience from being able to see everybody that it wants to specifically to focus and force your ads on a particular population that very likely would be less receptive to that ad than just letting that ad go out and find that lookalike audience of that ad is probably not a complete circle in a Venn diagram with the interest group audience, right? There's probably some overlap and there's some that isn't. Well, everybody that that ad would not have been shown to when you give it to broad with just letting that ad lookalike do the targeting every impression that you serve there is a much lower quality one. And what ends up happening is when you spend a lot, when you pay extra to deliver more and more low quality impressions to people, what that ends up doing is it raises your cost as an advertiser across your entire ad account, which is why even your good ad might cost you 30, 40, $50 CPMs is because Facebook is seeing you as a liability to their bottom line, kind of, you know, wrapping up everything that we talked about here putting it in a nice little bow, uh, that's a big piece that, that, you know, where it comes from versus how it's used. It was invented to make Google people feel comfortable on Facebook. Then 10 years went by. Facebook is not a pay-per-click platform. So it's old technology meant to solve old problems. And, but again, because the people that were really good at Google and email were the first people that were big thinkers inside of Facebook, those lessons continue to trickle down. And so we see this continue to be something that that's, that's valued, even though objectively speaking, when you lay it out on a sheet of paper, there's not a legitimately good argument to support it that I've seen in years other than, well, somebody told me I was supposed to do this and it's working for me. Which, hey, look, if it's working for you, great. Don't just set it on fire just because some stranger on the internet told you it's a bad idea. Just understand what you're doing. Is you're paying extra to have a lower overall quality relationship that is going to be more and more difficult and expensive to maintain and ultimately limit your ability to grow. And that's the investment. Every dollar you spend there is limiting your upside. And if you go into it knowing that, hey, Look, those are decisions you get to make, but I want people to know that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super fascinating and, and really, I hope helps people to really understand kind of the nature of Facebook and, and why the ads are so important and making ads that Facebook wants to show people. Um, yeah, that's super insightful. Thank you, Charlie. I know you have a course for sale. Do you want to yeah. plug it a bit here? Sure. So. I have a course on my site called how to build a winning Facebook ad account, which is like a 50,000 foot level and more 
in depth in that, I have a program that I teach, which is 10 courses over the space of about 12 weeks, including one-on-one time with me as needed, weekly group calls, and a community of people. And you have access to the community as well as that curriculum in perpetuity. And my big focus there is I am working on helping people understand how Facebook works, how to properly measure results, prove incremental lift, do creative testing properly, and project manage teams. And, and it's called the Facebook Ads MBA program. And primarily, you know, it's not how to run a Facebook, it's not how to set up Facebook ads. It is how do you take a six or seven figure business or an eight-figure business that has fired eight ad agencies and can't hire a media buyer that is that you've been happy with. How do you take that problem and turn it into something with an ongoing evergreen solution? Taking all the lessons that I've had over the last decade from extraordinarily successful businesses and terribly uncomfortable conversations that I've had with people when we were absolutely wrong. Um, and, and what do the successful people have in common? System and process. And then what do the unsuccessful people have common and why does the stuff that works work? Why does the stuff that doesn't work, why is that a liability? And ultimately my focus with that is to give people the confidence to be able to execute properly, to kind of demystify a lot of this stuff. And it's great for really three kinds of people. Um, entrepreneurs, business owners that may have been unhappy with media buyers or ad agencies, they weren't, they weren't happy with the results and they just want to own that information themselves and maybe hire internally or get better at finding a solution for them long-term. Um, agency owners that are losing clients and want to really scale their business by doing better work with a smaller set of clients instead of relying on their sales team to provide more and more clients to overwork and underpay poorly trained uh, media buyers, which is, is the business model for sadly a vast majority of agencies. And I've seen that mm -hmm. uh, more than a few times and, and I've helped a lot of those people. Um, and, and also freelancers, people that have gone out on their own that want to do this for a living. How can you install a system and a process that regardless of the vertical, teaches you how best appropriately to think like a CMO use Facebook as a market research and intent creation device, and ultimately improve your transparency, communication, and accountability. Um, because those are the things that really separate somebody who is paid to hit buttons and hopefully spend a budget and prove that they paid for themselves. What separates them from somebody who can name their own number to work with a business because the employees at that business get to go home at five o'clock and see their family because they're not there all night because you're providing that opportunity. And that is my why at the end of the day. I've been in the hustle porn culture, like, you know, where like you, if you left before eight o'clock at night or you showed up after 9 a.m., like you were shamed. And I've seen businesses struggle and I've seen what that does to people's hopes and their dreams and their families. And I just want to provide an alternative solution for people to have the resources to never have to face that issue again. And instead be in a position of opportunity, like when maybe your issue is you need to go out and get more funding or you have to hire three more people, like these really awesome problems. Like those are the types of things that I want people to have, 
instead of working through vacations and being stressed out and having to fire people or, you know, give up on their dreams. And so that's really what that's about. That's a much more esoteric <laughs> thing than saying, I'm going to tell you how to set up a Facebook campaign because ultimately the Facebook blueprint will do that for free. Mm -hmm. um, I'm here if you're ready to take that skill set and turn it into something much more. And yeah, sounds like a great program. I, my, my days are filled with happy people. I, 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 I have the luxury. I say this, if you want to have self-esteem, do esteemable acts. And my days are filled with helping people be happy. And that makes me sleep like a baby most nights. <laughs> That's great. So where can people find that? I have regular webinars that go through my process of that. And you can sign up for any of those at apply.facebookdisruptor.com. You can see those webinars. Um, you can't just sign up for the program. I interview everybody. If you want to reach out to me, I'm literally everywhere. My handle on everything is at CT, the disruptor. Um, you can check out my site, facebookdisruptor.com, but primarily signing up for that webinar will give you a really good idea of the skills and tools that we teach, as well as ways to just like, if it's not ready for you, you can take a lot of it and you get some freebies and you get some knowledge and you can walk away probably in a better place than when you started. So. Uh, it is, it is not one of those timeshare sales pitch type deals. I, if you want, if I can be helpful to you, awesome. If you want more help, I'm available. Cool. That sounds great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, uh, it's nice to talk to other, uh, men and women in this business. And especially when we're on the same team and, and trying to make things work, that that's a great thing. And. One of the biggest things about being an internet marketer is you can feel alone. And it's great to actually have relationships yeah, and conversations with people that's true. not just text on a screen. Yeah, so definitely. So I appreciate you giving me your time so I get to know you. And I, I, I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. And I'll see you next time.